now the start of the week and a busy old day on RTE Radio 1. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. We kind of made the scene safe. We used parked the vehicle in a certain way to protect us from other oncoming vehicles. Uh, we kind of announced ourselves in, our, in, in, in my very basic Spanish, you know, soy bomberos y paramédicos de Irlanda. What did they tell you about themselves and about why they did this? They told me they um, they wanted to stir the shit, is uh, what they said bluntly. So I've been warned to not do a political statement or to be like really, really boring or sad and stuff. So I'm going to start with a funny bit. As my mother lay dying in the Bon Secures Hospital in Cork, one of the very last things she said to me was, would I not consider retraining as a teacher if she could see me now getting a BAFTA for playing a teacher? <laughs> Joke's on you, man! <laughs> And we'll start in the morning and today with Claire Byrne. Mick Pilo was talking about his series of TV programmes missing beyond the vanishing triangle. The estranged brother of Larry Murphy has said he confronted him in prison almost 20 years ago about a number of women who had gone missing and whose remains were never found. Tom Murphy told an RT documentary that he confronted Larry Murphy in Arbor Hill Prison in 2005 and that was the last time he saw his brother. Well, his interview features in Beyond the Vanishing Triangle, a documentary series looking at some of the most notorious cases of women who disappeared within the so-called Vanishing Triangle angle throughout the 1990s. Part two of that series is on RT1 tonight at 9.35 and reporter Mick Pilo joins me in the studio now. Good morning, Mick. Good morning, Claire. How are you? I'm very well. A lot of uh, coverage yesterday and today over this, uh, the, the conversation you had with Tom Murphy about his conversation with his brother, Larry. And we we get a sense of I suppose what Tom has gone through and that conversation that he had. Just take us through what he told you. Well, the background of most of that is you, you realise that the Gardaí have made several attempts to, unsuccessful attempts to interview Larry Murphy in the past about the missing women cases. Um, he's within his rights not to talk to the Gardaí. Um, and one person that has, and I knew had done that, was his brother Tom. Now, his brother Tom is a strange brother, Tom, let's call him that, because he has nothing to do with Larry. Um, and, you know, he was concerned that maybe, he was a little worried that mm-hmm. maybe there was a connection. And so he said, well, I, I, I'll ask him. Now, he, 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 he put it on himself to go and visit Larry in prison and basically face to face with him saying, what have you to do or have you anything to do with these missing women? Now, he, say, he says um, uh, he didn't get any answers. Um, in fact, Larry looked at him as if to say, what are you asking me that for? You know, well, um, Mick, we, we have a clip now of Tom uh, talking to you as part of tonight's episode. Let's hear some of what he had to say. Last time I saw Larry was in 2005 in Arbor Hill Prison. I asked him, had he had to do to miss him I wasn't happy with his answers. I wasn't at all happy with them. I didn't get any answers. I never want to see him again. I can't begin to comprehend the suffering these families are going through. They get up in the morning to a house, their daughter's not there. They're sitting watching the front door to open for her to walk in. I have a daughter myself. I can't begin to imagine what it's like. I just can't. Yeah, I mean, Tom 
would just love that the families would have some resolution with regard to these cases. Um, I mean, the DPP did um, look at um, evidence in relation to Larry uh, that the Gardaí brought to them in relation to the disappearance of Deirdre Jacob, but decided in 2022 not to prosecute mm-hmm. him. And we've got to say that there isn't any link between, the Gardaí could not establish any link between Larry Murphy and any of the missing women. Yeah, and Tom puts it very well there, you know, just what he imagines the families are going through. And that comes across very strong, strongly over the two parts is just the impact, the massive wider impact on all of the families and the friends who are left behind when someone just goes missing, just vanishes. Yeah, I, and I, th- I suppose I learned that too because I hadn't noticed, I hadn't, I didn't think of it before, but they have a unique experience um, because they don't have closure, they don't have resolution, they don't have a body to, to bury, to, to grieve, they don't have a grave to go to. Um, and they all have, while they're all different, they're all different cases, um, they all have similar experiences, a mm-hmm. feeling of being left in the dark or a feeling of um, unanswered questions, not knowing what the Gardaí or what the Gardaí are doing in terms of this missing case. And that is what I what I found out is that what's important for families is information, communication with the Gardaí, regular communication with the Gardaí, because if they don't have that, their confidence in the Gardaí wanes over time. And some of these cases go on and on and on over years, as you saw Absolutely. last week and this week as well. And Claire asked Mick about Operation Trace. Some people listening might remember Operation Trace, which was launched back in 1998. Now, did you, you went back and looked at that and you looked at how it operated and you spoke to some people who worked on it. Were they frustrated at how that, at how they restricted they were under Operation Trace? I think they were. They were. They were indeed. We, we spoke to and we interviewed the, uh, the head of that, uh, Tony Hickey, who is uh, Assistant Commissioner, uh, Tony Hickey, former Assistant Commissioner. And, and he had a brilliant track record in solving crimes. Um, we, but we also interviewed Alan Bailey, a detective in that, in Operation Trace. And in a way, they were frustrated. It, it, this was a unit that for the first time was established by the Gardaí to, to look at the all of these missing cases because there were eight, six to eight missing cases, but they were focusing on six by the end of 1998 where there was panic ensued in, in society. And we were, there was a, a question, was there a, serious, a serial killer linked to these cases? And, and they were trying, their, their job was simply to collate the evidence and look and see were there any links or commonalities between them. Uh, and for the first time, the, a national unit was looking at these cases together rather than individuals, individual Gardaí in the local units area. in their local mm-hmm. areas. And so, yes, there was an element of frustration because they did discover things, but they also recommended to the local investigation units, this is what I think you need to do. They didn't find any links, but what they did find was in three of the cases, the Fiona Sinnott, Fiona Pender and Kira Breen cases, they found there were suspects, key suspects, but they had a cast iron alibis. And they also didn't, the guards didn't have enough evidence to bring to the DPP for a prosecution. And that was extremely frustrating for those families mm-hmm. uh, to know because they feel, they, they know who think, they think they know who's killed their loved one. And yet there's, there's nothing happening. That's what the impression they're getting. And the Gardaí are in a bind as well in relation to this too. So it, 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 it's, a, it's a lose-lose situation yeah. for the guards. We, we touched on this last week with Annie McCarrick's case where the classification of the investigation can be really problematic 
problematic. Yeah. Now, Annie's case was upgraded to a, a murder, murder investigation. That makes a huge difference to the family and to the guards. That didn't always happen, though. And no. the classification was problematic in these cases that you're in looking at. In some of the cases we looked at, the classifications were problematic. Historically, now, I don't think the guards do it today, but historically, what they did was they classified cases and uh, in terms of priority. And so they classified them as suspicious. So if, like Annie McCarry's case might have been suspicious. Yeah. Um, the possible suicide, possible drowning or voluntary leaving. She left of her own accord. Now, the the these categories had a direct bearing on any follow-up investigation that would take place afterwards. And one of the cases we looked at was a case Operation Trace took on was the case of Imelda Keenan, who disappeared in Waterford in 1994. And I spoke to her brother, Jerry, um, who, who in some ways, Imelda came to live with Jerry in Waterford. They were from Mount Melick when she was still a student in school. Uh, she loved Waterford so much. Jerry felt feels this huge responsibility for his sister. Now she was 22 when she left, or when she disappeared. I'm not saying she left anywhere, but she was 22 when she disappeared. And, and Jerry would say his family have suffered hugely. The pain of not knowing, the pain of 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 uh, unanswered questions it eats away at them like a cancer. He says his two brothers who died prematurely is probably because of the stress of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we've discovered in, our, in, in this programme, in this documentary, was Alan Bailey, when he went to review the file for Operation Trace, he was the detective in Operation Trace, was, was surprised to find that it was categorised as a possible suicide. Yeah, and Jerry, uh, Imelda's brother, he didn't know that, that it was categorised as a, a no. possible suicide. Suicide. We have a, a clip of Jerry now. Let's hear some of what he had to say. Mella would never, ever think of suicide. I don't think Mella would ever consider that. Deep down in my own heart, I think that Mella was murdered in Watford. I think Mella knew her murder. Is this a missing case or is it a murder case? After 29 years, this has to be the murder case. We want the Gardaí to look into it more for us. Give us peace. I always believe that there is two or three people here in Watford City holding back vital information. We want someone to come forward. Please, and just take us out of this pain. So it was through the investigations as part of the documentary that Jerry found out about this possible suicide classification. Yeah. And he's tried to, to get some action now off the back of that. He's written yeah. to the Gardaí, hasn't he? The family got together after this and basically wrote to the Gardaí because, you know, this is the first time they've li- literally publicly acknowledged that they believed Imelda was murdered. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge step to take for a family. But then to hear this news that it was categorised in the past as a possible suicide. So they, they wrote to the Gardaí with a series of questions looking for answers. Um, and and we wrote to the Gardaí as well. Uh, and and th- th- they wanted to know, um, uh, they, they wanted answers that they felt they, they deserved. And the answer we got was the case remains as a missing person case. Now, the Keenans want to know, what does that mean, a missing person case? When you say the file is open, what does it mean? Um, do you suspect foul play like we do? Um, are you proactive in going out looking for evidence or are you waiting for evidence to come in and then act on it? Um, but the not knowing 
of all of this is bothering them. It, it basically adds to their pain. Now, to be fair to the Garthi, and I think this is what, they have limited resources and um, they prioritise the allocation of those resources uh, into solving cases. And they hope that by solving the cases, at the end of the day, that will alleviate the pain mm -hmm. of the families and bring them some sort of closure. But the problem is, is that um, when the cases go on like a Meldis for 29 years and they don't know, the family have a right to know some of those. And I think the Gardaí should be able to give them answers to questions without affecting the integrity of the investigation. Mick Pilo from Today with Claire Byrne. And Missing Beyond the Vanishing Triangle will be available on the RTE player. And if any of these issues have affected you, help and support can be found at rte.ie slash helplines. And on Morning Ireland, Dave Connolly is a Dublin Fire Brigade station officer and he was telling Mary Wilson about coming to the rescue in Spain. Now yesterday, Dave Connolly, a Dublin Fire Brigade station officer and five colleagues were driving between Seville and Malaga to catch a flight home when their skills as first responders and skilled paramedics in first aid were called into service. Dave, good morning to you. And what happened? Good morning. Uh, thanks for having us on. So, yeah, so yesterday, uh, the Double Fire Brigade Rope Rescue Team, we'd been over in Seville at an event called Rescue Great Day, which is organised by the Seville Fire Service. Uh, basically, it's uh, bringing together uh, rope rescue professionals to develop their skills and to learn from each other and meet fellow rescuers. Like uh, a couple of the teams from Malaga over there, they would have been over um, at the European mm -hmm. Civil Protection Mechanism response to Turkey, the earthquake. So we're all there to learn from each other and help develop. Um, so the challenges take part, everything to do with ropes, basically um, we use ropes and techniques to treat and rescue people in environments that are dangerous and difficult to access. Okay. Uh, they involve everything, working with search and rescue, handler dogs, right. uh, crushing injuries. Stadiums. And you were heading so, home after after a few days away. Yeah, so we're heading home. Uh, we're on a three-lane motorway on just on the outskirts of Seville um, after four long days. Um, you know, the normal uh, amiable banter and chit-chat in the car. We're in the middle lane, a pair of motorbikes passes by, nothing unusual. And then 60 seconds later, we come across two or three cars in the motor with their ha hazards on. So we start to move over a lane uh, to the right as we slow down. And then we, we notice there's a person lying on the ground. They've got a bare chest and a helmet on. And uh, there's two to three people standing around looking pretty stunned. So uh, immediately, we kind of just switch from our lighthearted Amy will chat to back into professional firefighter paramedic mode. Um, and all of the next things that happen all kind of happen simultaneously. Each of us taking up different roles. So we kind of made the scene safe. We used parked the vehicle in a certain way to protect us from other oncoming vehicles. Uh, we kind of announced ourselves in our in, in my very basic Spanish, you know, soy bomberos y paramedicos de Irlanda. Um, we straight away, one of our guys, Richie Elias, he's a very experienced motorcyclist and he helps train up marshals for race events so he kind of recognised we're pulling up immediately with the helmet look motorcyclists we need to get that helmet off quickly stabilise the um, the airway uh, and uh, prevent what's called an impact brain apnea injury uh, what that means is if, if severe impact to the head it affects parts of the brain that controls the breathing and it's an absolutely life threatening condition if it's not treated treated within two to three minutes it becomes fatal uh, without resuscitation so uh, we all go about our jobs as professionals. Uh, myself and one of my colleagues, Juan Ara, we head to the head. Juan stabilises the neck. I, I proceed to take off the helmet and, and there's a particular technique for doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, as soon as the helmet is off, Juan takes over managing stabilising the neck and the head. 
and he does a technique called a jaw thrust to maintain an open airway and stabilise the neck potential for spinal neck injuries. You, um, you have won the admiration of your colleagues in Seville and they tweeted afterwards, without any hesitation, they say of you, you protected the area, posted signs, you got on with it. Now, this biker was unconscious. He had multiple injuries. He couldn't breathe. And through your help, your, your colleagues in Seville say the Irish firefighters prevented a respiratory failure and cardiac arrest. You went a long way there to saving a life yesterday and all without a thought for yourselves or catching a flight home. Well done. Yeah, it's, thanks very much. It's just kind of what we do in the fire brigade. We help people. It was great having an advanced paramedic there, Dave. He was talking on the phone to the translator in Seville, uh, you know, giving a good message that the patient was unresponsive, re, uh, getting the help. And the latest, said to send the latest is, Dave, that uh, the, the, the biker is doing okay. That's great to hear. Fair play to them. That's Dave Connolly on Morning Ireland with Mary Wilson. And on Today with Claire Byrne, that hoax opinion piece and the beginnings of a new age of media targeting using artificial intelligence. So the Irish Times yesterday apologised for publishing an article on its website which it now admits was a hoax. The opinion column entitled Irish Women's Obsession with Fake Tan is Problematic was revealed to be AI generated as was the accompanying photograph. In a moment I'll speak to Professor Alan Smeaton from the Insights Centre for Data Analytics at DCU but First, I'm joined on the line by Mark Tighe, who's journalist with the Sunday Independent. And Mark was in contact with the author, in inverted commas, of the uh, hoax article for his piece in yesterday's paper. Good morning, Mark. Morning, Claire. So you're sure now that you were actually in contact with the person who was behind this, because this is getting quite confusing for people who are listening to all of this. Yeah, obviously, look, we had to be careful um, that we weren't duped ourselves in the Sunday Independent. So, you know, we, we asked for proof of life, I suppose. Um, we asked for, you know, the evidence that the, the person, there was a Twitter account uh, going by the name of uh, Adriana Costa Cortez, you know, who was initially, you know, accepting kind of compliments and saying thanks to the Irish Times on, on the Twitter account and using the same profile picture. Um, and then, you know, getting engaged in a bit of the debate about fit, the use of fake tan, whether that was, you know, culturally, a cultural appropriation or racist. Um, and, you know, when when the Irish Times pulled the story down or the, the opinion piece on Friday, um, they, they tweeted, you know, that it was, they thought it was, you know, laughable how easily the Irish Times had been duped. So I, I started DMing them private messaging and I asked, you know, can you show me the emails um, which show that you're behind this? And they were able to provide a chain of emails uh, where they're uh, liaising with the Irish Times opinion editor, uh, Jennifer O'Connell. Also, they they had emails where Jennifer had passed on um, emails from the likes of RTE and News Talk, you know, producers who were looking to have Adriana come on air and talk about the uh, the, the, the opinion column that it stirred up quite a fuss, you know, quite a debate. And mm-hmm. and uh, so, you know, we, and we were able to, uh, I was able to check those emails with, with sources uh, to show that they were, that they were genuine emails with, okay. with, with, the, with the Irish Times. So, so that, this, this, person. this person, Mark, who you were then in touch with, in, in contact with, what did they tell you about themselves and about why they did this? They told me they um, they wanted to stir the shit, is uh, what they said bluntly. You know, they were, they they've been involved in a, creating a website um, where with a friend, and they were setting up kind of fake testimonials where people were talking about how great the service was, and they wanted to use photographs, you know, to, to kind of add a bit of authenticity to these fake uh, testimonials. And this is where they started looking into Dale Two, which is uh, a, a very powerful and a newish tool. Um, which you can, you know, you, you 
give it a few a feed in the prompts and they'll generate an image for you. And they can generate an image of a person, you know, which is not a real person. And coupled with ChatGTP4, um, which is a, a professional AI kind of um, chatbot, or which can you know mold uh, an article for you if you prompt, give it the right prompts. They they said to their friends, "I bet you I could do you know couple these two different technologies using AI technology to create an image, a persona, and create an article, and I can get that published under that fake persona." Mm-hmm. And un- unfortunately for the Irish Times. Um, you know, Jennifer O'Connell had been recently appointed as the opinion editor there and I'd sought, you know, new voices and kind of put out a call for people to, to submit articles. Um, so they decided to to target the Irish Times and they had this original idea themselves, you know, that where does uh, the use of fake tan cross over into blackface, which is one of these kind of, you know, hot topic cultural debate issues, you know, about, you know, cultural appropriation and racism where it could be unintentional. They said, I bet you I can get an article, craft an article like that. And they use the uh, ChatGTP4 article, or sorry, um, ChatGTP4 tool, and they generated this article, which they submitted to the Irish Times back on May 4th. Okay, so I suppose you you could conclude that it wasn't really malicious. It was more, as you said, stirring it, experimenting with AI and just seeing how far they could get. Exactly, yeah. Look, it's something as a journalist, I suppose you're you're always cautious. Um, You know, if someone's giving you something uh, or giving giving you a tip or a story, you know, that they could be, you know, tr- they could be malicious. They could be trying trying it on. In this case, yeah, they were they were trying it on with the Irish Times, and I suppose they were surprised. They they told me they were they were shocked actually. They got, got published so quick. Um, the Irish Times got back to them and said they they really liked the piece. They thought it was uh, well written. There were they did it suggest a series of edits, and they came back and you know they did edit it. So they said eighty percent of the final article had been crafted by AI. But they they made the suggested changes. The Irish Times published it like. There were there were red flags, I suppose, when I was looking back. You know, they they said that they were, uh, you know, a cat mum, they had a Latinx, they had the blue hair. You know, these are kind of some of these are kind of I know tropes about you know someone who's ultra woke, you know, ultra liberal, and this is kind of what they actually tried to do. That they were crafty. They thought this is something that a media organisation, in particular the Irish Times, might eat up. You know, this is something that um, you know by saying a fake tan is racist, suggesting that it's racist. That, that would prompt a lot of debate. It did, and and you know when they were prompting the uh, image generator to create the the image for this woman, Adriana Costa Cortez, you know they they were putting in prompts, you know like that. I want her to be overweight, blue hair, smug expression. They said this would be kind of a you know a, a quintessential woke journalist. And, mm-hmm. and even when the article was published on Thursday, and this is where I I kind of came cotton on to people on Reddit and on Twitter were saying. You know, just this woman, <laughs> like if you wanted to make this woman up as someone who would annoy people on maybe uh, who, do, who don't like kind of woke things or, or, or maybe on the right side, right right wing of things, this is the woman who would just get get their goat. Mark Tig there. Then Claire spoke to DCU's Professor Alan Smeaton. I know you were watching all of this play out over yeah. the weekend. Did you think it was a sophisticated hoax? I thought it was um, sophisticated in that what. Uh, the hoaxer had done had built up their Twitter profile, had bought uh, some some followers and some likes and stuff, as as Mark pointed out in his article, um, and she or he nearly got away with it. What tripped uh, the hoaxer up was the fake generated image that was done 
perhaps deliberately uh, in a way which made it non-realistic. Now, when you look at an article like that and you look at the byline photograph, it appears like the size of a postage stamp. So nobody really zooms in on this. Um, but another journalist, uh, Rosanna Cooney, uh, from the, um, the, the Currency, uh, zoomed in on this, looked at it, thought that doesn't look real, submitted it to a, 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 a detector to, that can detect the difference between um, real and fake and said this doesn't look fake. Then... She started to investigate further and then revealed um, all of the, the, mm-hmm. the background to it. Because as, as Mark said, the text of the article had been tweaked with edits yeah. and human intervention. Yeah. So that might not have been as detectable, but the picture was easily... It was the picture was the giveaway. The text, yeah. text cannot reliably be detected as fake uh, or authentic, even if you submit the, the US Constitution as a fake detector, it comes out as being artificially intelligence generated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was the image that gave away. And then when you zoom in at the image, you look at the two eyes are different. Um, the nose looks like the right half and the left half come from two different people. So it was the image that gave away the um, the, the, the reveal. Uh, so the software then to detect the use of AI, is that not as sophisticated as the AI tool? It cannot be uh, when it comes to text. If you have a very short piece of text, like the, a WhatsApp message, it's re, it's virtually impossible to detect the difference between AI generated and human generated because even the way we type in texts like that. And as the text gets longer and longer and longer, almost to the extent of a novel, for example, then the chances of detecting it reliably increase. But for short texts, it's very, virtually impossible to detect the difference between artificially generated uh, and human generated. Mm-hmm. So then we get to the point where we start to debate, well, you might just use the AI as a source, then yeah. you'll tweak it. The way we all used to research our essays when we were in school and, yeah. and college and then write your own thing at the end. Is that not the same? Like, when is it your own work and when is it AI? This is where, this is the grey area where we don't know. It hasn't been regulated. It hasn't been decided. Society itself hasn't decided on what's that tipping point. Uh, but if you wanted to generate something and pass it as fake, uh, face, uh, pass it as genuine uh, and use AI to generate it, there are easy ways in which you can fool AI detectors. You can just change pronunciation, you just misuse apostrophes and stuff like that. So it is possible to get past the, the current technologies that are available for detecting the difference between human generated uh, and AI generated text. And they work better and better as the text gets longer. There's more mm-hmm. to, to work on. Do you think, though, that using AI will become acceptable, you know, to a certain extent? I think it will. It has yet to find its comfortable landing spot where it is provided as a support to us when we do creative things. Uh, and in the creative industry, artists, for example, there's a you know currently a, a dis- major disruption about how it could be used and how it could be used to support the creative process. We haven't found that comfortable landing spot yet. Mm-hmm. And Mark, to come back to you, there are lessons right across the board to be learned, I think, uh, from this incident at the weekend. Yeah, unfortunately, it, it joins kind of fancy enough, you know, um, journalistic hall of shame, kind of where, you know, where journalists, you know, like the Hitler diaries with the Sunday Times, you know, ju- there is a history of people trying to fool newspapers and I suppose it's a lesson for all of us to be more cautious, you know, where people submit things, you know, like there was no phone call. The person said they, they were never actually, you know, rung up and, you know, had a conversation. They couldn't have, they couldn't have spoofed that, you know, the AI isn't there to do that. Yes, thankfully. Um, so I think, yeah, it's a lesson for all of us to be, you know, someone's su- submitting something that's going to generate outrage and maybe it's ticking a lot of boxes. Um, you know, you should be on be suspicious, and it's a lesson for all of us. Yeah, God, mm-hmm. there for the grace of God. But you know, Mark, when we first started talking about AI, we were wondering, well, will, will all of our jobs become redundant now? <laughs> but actually, it this shows that there is more value in the real thing, right? 
yeah, look, we're all under pressure in the media, and I suppose there's a it shows a greater need for for editors and sub editors to do the basic background checks, you know, to to talk to people, take the time to phone people up, meet them, uh, talk to them about things, not to be racing things out. Um, so I, I'd argue, yeah, it shows a greater need for for that level of background checks, researchers and and producers and uh, sub editors mm. in newspapers, but you, you know, know, which can't be done by you. Well, look, Mark, we would say that, Alan, would you? I think so too. Yeah, oh, good. I said <laughs> it's always been there and and as a support for the creative industry, no matter what creative industry it is, mm. it's there as support. But you know, it does go to prove that you tell AI, you know, the, the bare facts about what you want to have produced at the end, and off it goes and, yeah. and does it. Yeah, and as Mark says, what's comfortable about this, the the, the lesson that's learned is, is that it was a topic that in in the, in the greater scheme of things, doesn't really matter. Nobody died. There wasn't an election lost or won on the back of, of this. This was something about, uh, and no disrespect to fake tens and people's views on them, it didn't really matter. Professor Alan Smeaton from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the live line in the afternoon, Colm O'Mungoyne was talking about getting behind the Irish women's soccer team and finding an unofficial anthem for the World Cup with singer-songwriter Mundy. So you're looking to lend your support now to the uh, Women's Republic of Ireland <laughs> soccer team now. You heard about our appeal last week and it tickled your interest. Yeah, well, uh, a friend of mine actually got in touch, uh, mut- a mutual friend of myself, Sharon Shannon's actually, uh, got in touch and saying, you know what, the, um, and she's a big soccer fan, she said uh, uh, the, that Ireland were playing Australia and in, in, um, in Australia on the 20th of July. And she said, your song will be perfect for that. And... Uh, she was listening to the show, and um, and I said, "Listen, sure, I may as well uh, put my name forward because, you know, it's uh, it's in July, and July is July." <laughs> and you've you've played it, you've you've gone out gigging in Australia before. This is this song is no stranger to Australia. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, well, it, it's funny enough, you know, as we know, it's a summer song here, but um, it's winter over there, so it's almost a Christmas song now, you know. Right, uh, okay, a Christmas <laughs> in a classic. Very strange, so yeah, what, yeah, what no, would you no, have I, to do for it? Are you talking about adapting the lyrics? Are you talking about redoing yeah, the video? Well, I mean, Give well, us a few thoughts. Yeah, well, the fir- well, the first, um, I haven't thought about it too much now, um, but like, well, the first uh, part of the song is, July, please, I'm on my knees, the smell of your fresh cut grass. And sure, that's part of that's part of the song is already written there, you know. Right, there's and a I shout out to the groundskeepers in Australia. We could see exactly. the lawnmower rolling over that one. Yeah, there's good, yeah, and the pitch and has I, been and, lined. And then I just, and then I would just have to start. Um, Naming naming people on the team, I suppose, and and bring in the art of uh, soccer into the song and the imagery, and uh, and then you have the chorus. Oh my 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 July, um, but you know, uh, I, listen, I'm I, if 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 it's any help at all, I'm in, I mean, I'd be interested in uh, bending the lyrics to fit fit the occasion. Right. Um, do, you, do you have good memories of previous football anthems? I mean, we had uh, obviously the put him under pressure and uh, Johnny Field yeah. from the Horse Lips, who, who died recently. His iconic guitar lick well, appeared in the, that. Yeah, well, that was the first thing that came into my head. And uh, I mean, yeah, and may he rest in peace. He was one of the best guitar players, players in the world, and, you know, to come out of our country. Um, but yeah, that, that's the, the sort of thing. And, you know, you, you could just. Um, Bring in special guests to, you know, take a line on it, or you know, join in the chorus, and maybe Sharon Shannon would come along and play some accordion on it. I don't know, um, but as I said, I'm open to suggestions, and um, if it's not a runner, I don't mind either because the song does its own thing anyway; it has its own life now, you know.
Right. So, you, I mean, you've you've been busking since, I think, it's your mid, mid to late teens. So what's the kind of difference between a song that makes the passerbys stop and sing along and a, a more quiet one, maybe one that you'd have composed well, for the well, for well, the more romantic feel? Yeah, well, what's what's weird with um, July in particular, particular is that I never thought that the chorus was any good. <laughs> and I thought it was just too throwaway. So Show us what you know about a, music. Exactly. It's got a good good verses and all that. And I actually kind of wrote it as an antidote to um, Lou Reed's Perfect Day, which I even mentioned. Uh, it looks like another perfect day. But uh, his was quite a downbeat song. And I, I, I came up with this finger-picking arpeggio and I started singing my version of A Nice Day uh, along to it. And uh, But the chorus was never fixed. And uh, eventually I just recorded it and uh, it stuck to the wall as songs do and uh, it's still going. And um, so I, you never know. You never know what, what's a catchy one and what's not. Um, you can usually feel, uh, what I do is when I play a new song, I never say it's mine. I'll do a few covers. I'll squash an original in the middle of the covers. And if, and I look at the floor and if people's feet are tapping, right. I'll, announce, I'll announce then, oh, that's one of my ones. It's, it's, the, equivalent, it's, it's the equivalent of... Um Mashing up vegetables to get it into children, is it? You can see, see if they get used to the taste first. Yeah, you, you kind of, yeah. And if, if there's no, no reaction to it, you go, oh, that was that. That's someone's B-side, you know. <laughs> and Mariana would love to hear Monday's July cheering on the girls in green. Yeah, I was just listening to your conversation and I think it would be a great song. I could just imagine it really getting the girls going at the tournament and all the fans. A bit like 1990 for the lads. Are you a fan yourself? Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm in and out, but like all my kids play soccer and we've been up to see the girls in Tyler before. And uh, it's, a, it's a great vibe and I think it'd be lovely, lovely to get that song going and get the names in there and get them all, all the kids singing it before the tournament. Right, you're obviously a fan of the, the, the song there. Do you want to say hello to Mundy? Hi Mundy, how are you? I think I was that with 2001 actually. Oh yeah, well Jesus, it's not there yesterday. But, uh, no, I think I probably was there. <laughs> Great you, memories. You, you don't well. Mariana's a bit shaky as to whether there's any memories. A good time had it witness to Monday, was there, exactly, Mariana? Exactly. Yeah, it was different <laughs> days before I had kids that uh, they wanted to go up and support the girls in green. Right. And where are they <laughs> playing soccer, Mariana? Where do your kids play? Um, they play in Regional United here in um, Limerick in Doyle. And uh, yeah, they they all love it. My, my husband's absolutely crazy about football, so it's kind of the big thing in our family. Right, and you've taken them two hours odd up the road to see the uh, the women's team in, in, in Tala, have you? We have, yeah, yeah, and they got waves from the bus by the team as well, which was great. They were very excited by it all, and yeah, there's always a lovely atmosphere, loads of kids, and I could just imagine, you know, that whole generation maybe don't know the song as well, but I could imagine it taking off. So there's a chance to reintroduce it. You might get you might get uh, your own kids working on it. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, they might come up with yeah, a few absolutely. lyrics and get back to us with them. We certainly will. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But please, I'd love to see this go ahead. And yeah, I, I agree with the conversation the other day that we we need a bit more um, of a build up for the girls going over. A bit more hype. A bit more oomph. A bit more hype. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a massive. It is the first for time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for the country, and for women's yeah. football and women's in sport in general. On Monday, what, what, sorry, how long is the song on the go? Uh, it's actually 21 years old this year. Now, I wrote it about 24 years ago, but it's 21 years out there this year. Right, and might you have road tested it, sandwiched in between a few covers in front of Mariana in 2001 at Witness, or when was the first time you uh, showcased no, I knew, it live? I knew, I, knew, 
I knew it was ready uh, when I was bringing it to witness. Uh, now, usually when I'm talking about doing covers, I'd, I'd be talking about playing at a little party with a few friends of mine. That's how I kind of test out the new stuff, um, you know, when you're having a few drinks back at someone's house and there's a little jamming session. That's when I kind of test out the songs and see if they're any good or not, you know. Right. And Mariana, coming from the fan side of things, how do Monday, how do Monday songs go down in a crowd? Oh, this is brilliant. We're in a big stadium like that and the sun shining. Although I don't remember if it was, if it was shining that day. Probably not. But, um, mm. you know, you just, it just really builds the atmosphere in a big venue. I think it'll shine in Australia anyway. Mundy and Mariana on the live line with Colm going. And on today with Claire Byrne, the attack on an immigration camp in Dublin over the weekend. First this morning, there was widespread condemnation over the weekend when a makeshift camp for homeless asylum seekers on Sandwith Street in Dublin's south inner city became the focus of an anti-immigration protest. Videos were circulated online showing the camp in flames after furniture and wooden pallets were set alight. Well, speaking on Morning Ireland this morning, the Minister for Integration, Rodrigo Gorman, said there were 480 people who had not been offered accommodation over the weekend, but that a significant number of this group will be offered accommodation over the next week. Well, for more on this, I'm joined on the line first by Jack Power, news reporter at the Irish Times. Good morning, Jack. Good morning, Claire. So take us back and explain exactly what happened over the weekend at this camp. Yeah, so on Thursday and Friday, there were um, several kind of, I suppose this camp became the focus of anti-immigration protests and demonstrations. And on Friday evening, there was a significant anti-immigration protest kind of targeting the camp. Um, And then there was a parallel um, demonstration of, you know, kind of pro-immigration or pro-refugee demonstrators um, who who turned up as well with Gardaí separating both groups. Um, and, and sometime after that situation um, kind of dissipated, videos circulating online um, showed a number of men kind of dismantling this makeshift camp um, where around um, kind of 10 or so uh, homeless asylum seekers had been sleeping for around a fortnight. Um, and then videos later showed the, the, the camp up in flames. So on, on, on Saturday morning, I um, went out to it um, you know, and at that stage it was it was abandoned, um, and you know you can you know, kind of walk in among the kind of burnt debris of kind of mattresses and sofas, um, you kind of just see um, I suppose remnants of you know the camp in terms of books, you know kind of toothbrushes, suitcases, um, you know kind of cooking um, cooking equipment and um, tins of um, tins of food and stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, sleeping bags and tents kind of strewn strewn about. So you were there on Saturday and on Saturday there were more protests about five minutes walk from that Sandwith Street location and some scuffles broke out, Jack. Yeah, so five minutes from the, the Sandwith Street site there's a much larger camp of around, um, I counted, 50 tents um, which are pitched along kind of Mount Street and down um, um, down Grattan Court which is beside the um, International Protection Office which is the state agency of the Department of Integration which, which processes um, asylum applications. So that, that kind of camp has been there for a number of weeks um, as this, this issue of um, the state being unable to offer shelter to asylum seekers has, has gotten worse over, over recent months and it's, it's kind of grown significantly you know kind of one tent you know being pitched uh, beside the next and the next um, and then yeah as you said on Saturday um, 
a group of uh, anti-immigration uh, protesters um, walking past it, um, you know, were effectively kind of um, shouting at, um, at at people there and and, and people in tents, and, and and Gaudi were responding to that as well. I understand, mm-hmm. um, and then had a had a presence there, um, you know, kind of afterwards. And it was kind of speaking to some of the some of the men who were um, who'd kind of come, you know, as recently as a, a week ago or so into the country, um, and then found themselves sleeping rough. You know, there was some sense of. Um, some sense of kind of concern for their for their safety. You know, they're obviously in a, an incredibly vulnerable position, um, you know, out um, out on the street and uh, you know, kind of quite exposed. Um, and I suppose in, in terms of the Mount Street um, site by the, the IPO offices, they're um, you know they they um, I suppose anti-immigration protesters clearly know that they're there. If that makes sense, so they're um, they're kind of quite visible and their location is quite known. It was striking, though, that one of them said to you he felt safer there than he did where he came from. Yeah, so I suppose that that just kind of highlights, um, and I suppose the um, the Irish Refugee Council um, would have kind of said um, much the same in, in terms of I was speaking to, to Nick Henderson there and, and the people there dealing with, um, you know, that, that in a lot of cases, um, you know, you know, some of these cases, people are fleeing kind of war and, and persecution, and um, um, and and even in in the situation, sleeping in a tent in Dublin is 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 better than where they came from. Mm-hmm. And just remind us then what Roderick O'Gorman said this morning about what's likely to happen. Did he put a figure on the number of beds he expects to come into use this week? Yes, this kind of stems also from a High Court challenge that was taken against the department over the the failure um, of the state to provide shelter and accommodation to asylum seekers. Um, So the department and officials have really been kind of scrambling um, kind of since then in the uh, the last week and a half or so and and kind of past that um, to source and bring on additional um, accommodation. So um, we understand that um, there's kind of plans in um, in the coming days to open a number of um, other kind of accommodation centres. And I think the hope is that they will um, provide a, a good deal of accommodation to try and cater for these 420 or 480 people that at, mo- at the moment have been left without accommodation. And, and many of those are, are sleeping rough in, in tents. Jack Power from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, writer Jo Spain was chatting to Ryan about her many projects, including her latest book, Don't Look Back, and her work on the TV show Harry Wilde. Let's talk about different things that you're doing. I, I mean, we'll come to the book in a moment. The last time I met you, it was on a more social occasion and we, we had the pleasure of the company of Jane Seymour, among others. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, that's Harry Wilde. So remind us about your, your work with that programme and with her and what's happening there. Yeah, we just filmed seasons two and three back to back in Dublin. We worked from October to April, which was fun because Jane Seymour is a tiny woman um, with no body fat to keep her warm at all. And we had quite a cold winter. So she'd filmed the first season in summer and she was like, Ireland's such a beautiful place. And this woman lives in Malibu. So this yeah. winter was a shock to her. Yeah. So we kept her warm with, you know, wine and hugs. Yes. <laughs> yes. And we, we got her through the six months and now we're post-producing those 12 hours of TV. Um, myself and Dave Logan's my co-writer yes. on it. Um, so we're doing that and it, it, we bounced off that into where we're doing another show for RT at the moment. So we're trying to take over every station on TV. So it seems. Yeah. <laughs> so you're doing there, you're kind of what they call show running essentially, yeah. which yeah. is kind of writing and editing and pulling it all together. And, and that's that's quite intense. You got six, 12 episodes. Yeah, it is. It's, it's intense, but we've... 
we have a phenomenal team. TV's team. It's all collaborative. Like books are just me and my own, but TV yeah. is working with a great team and they all want to get the best thing on television. Um, but it's it's for control freaks like myself and Dave. Yeah. It's fantastic because we get to see the product from the idea that we have to then that finalised hour that goes with all the gloss and the sound and the colour and making sure our actors look fantastic. I thought Jane Seymour, she's a charming woman, isn't she? She's a lovely person. She's something else. Yeah, she, she she's left. Very, very interested in the everything. I remember yeah. you know, talking to her even off air. She's interested in 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 who she's talking to and yeah. in, in in life broadly but speaking. She's full genuinely of kind as well. She yeah. she left um, me a, a voucher for the spa in the Marion before she went. <laughs> and a beautiful necklace to say thank you. You know, she was thanking everybody who helped her. She's a real class act. You know, she's in Hollywood a long time. She's got a lot of crazy stories. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. I can't wait for season four. Um, <laughs> and she's, but she's still a really true heart. Yeah, good on her. Yeah. And Harry Wise is, is playing well in the States, isn't it? I mean, that's, yeah, that's the it's very... Acorn's biggest show in the States. Is it really? It's sold everywhere in the world. So it's... Yeah, pretty big. I want to go back to, uh, I was talking about libraries last week here on the show and how how amazing they are as buildings and as places. And I know we spoke so spoke briefly before, but one of the things I was reading about you that I found fascinating was that one of those boring books you ever read was George Orwell's <laughs> yeah. Keep the Aspidistras Flying. I've never read it. I don't know. <laughs> don't. <laughs> <laughs> I read 1984 like everyone else, but but is it, is it what happened? What did that book do to you? Did it nearly, so, must have, did so it nearly kill your love of literature um, dead? Yeah, it was when I I'd read all the books in the children's section and the um, librarian, I think, was taking notice of me because I was there every day. Yeah. And I said to her, I'm bored now. And she said, OK, I'll get you an adult ticket. I mean, I think I was like 10. You know, she shouldn't yeah. have done that. But yeah. I said, so what do I read? And she's like, well, I'll curate a list for you. She didn't want to let me loose. God knows what I'd pick up. And the first book she gave me What's was that? Keep the Astro. And I was like, what? Was this, is this a test <laughs> to see if I actually like reading? Or, And I, I wrote that actually into a Harry Wilde episode recently where Fergus, the character, says it. And Jane Seymour's character, Harry Wilde, is saying, why? Yeah. <laughs> Why yeah. would you read that? Why would you read such a thing? Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I wonder if you read it now, would it, would 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 your opinion change? Maybe you were just a, could could you have been a little young at the time for for such a thing? That's the next. Yeah, question. I just have such strong PTSD from it. I don't want to go back. You do. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me talk to you about other things as well. As you're writing for TV, uh, you you think about the writer strike in the, in the states. I think that was really. I was listening to a, a report on it on the on the Daily podcast, and. The writers were all on strike with their with their placards or whatever uh, from the biggest shows in America, like mm-hmm. whatever. But they have their their talk shows that they call them, uh, but also the drama shows, and they're just really annoyed and they're worried yeah. about their futures. Are you au fait with what's happening there? Absolutely, yeah. I'm I'm in the um, Writers Guild of Ireland, so we're in solidarity. We won't take any work with American shows because that's. Oh, I didn't realize it was yeah, uh, across yeah. Atlantic transatlantic yeah, because uh, this uh, the WGA is is such a big strong union, and we need them to win this fight because it's that the Writers will spread, Guild of America. Yeah, yeah. That, that will spread globally. Um, if they don't win, what are they fighting for exactly? It is. It's. It's protecting the creator of the art. I mean, there's lots of different things in that, in that contract, but two big ones are the introduction of AI for writing. So that's artificial intelligence. Just, you know, you say to this bot, um, I want a show with a detective who used to be a, a lecturer who works with a sidekick who solves mysteries every week and one of them involves a, I don't know, a parrot killing an otter. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, yeah. and they will generate a show. So you've now lost the human being behind that original format. And then the second thing is that a lot of the time when writers create this idea for a show and they write a pilot, the studios will then bring in kind of cheap writers to complete that show. 
Oh, that's so cheeky. So they're yeah. undercutting the you intellectual. You don't own your IP then at that yeah. point. And I think in screenwriting, it's one of the last bastions where the writer is generally, you know, our European contracts are protected, you're paid well. And there's a lot of arts that people just expect for free, like streaming and, and digital formats have managed to bring down the cost of things to the point where people think that they should get it for free. Yeah. But the artists behind those things can't create them unless they're paid. And Joe spoke about the impending threats for writers. There are no stories without the writers. There is nothing without the writers. So it's about recognising the talent and protecting it. Except the bots. Yeah, you know, they're, 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 the, yeah. They're, yeah, there may be stories without the writers. <laughs> then that's what they would like to do because then they get it for free. But yeah. I mean, then you lose everything. You just lose well, you art. lose soul. Yeah. And don't you? I mean, that's that's the difficulty with the AI. It's that you, the, the lack of humanity. I mean, science fiction writers have been writing about this for a hundred years, but... Uh, I know. I just feel like humans happening. just keep trying to write themselves out of existence. Yeah. <laughs> they actually are now writing themselves out of existence. Yeah, really. Yeah. But I, th- I suppose it also it's, it's quite a good... The way the things are working, I feel union are starting to get kind of come back into the fold again in a way that they had disappeared in terms of their power not disappeared but it, it waned but I feel when you look at things like Amazon over in the, in the States where people are forming these little unions and suddenly they're realising that unions are important against yeah. the, the, the small amount of very wealthy people When everything is going well people just don't see the point for unions but unions are there for a point and it kind of, it, it, it fills you with passion when you see the likes of this strike now because these guys have walked off the successful shows. Even yeah. the guys who are making money are standing beside the people who were being kind of messed around by the studios yeah. and everyone's on the picket line together saying enough. And there's a strength in that like and it, it's it's inspiring to think that not everyone's going to cutthroat yeah. just to, you know, because they're happy with their rung on the ladder. Because you were, you were very politically active, weren't you? I mean, it's like politically active. You were parliamentary sec. How, how would you describe your... Yeah, parliamentary advisor. Advisor yeah, to yeah. Pierce Doherty yeah. of Sinn Féin. For how long, how many years did you do that for? Ten years. Ten years. So you, yeah. saw, you saw politics at the co-face up, up front. Yeah. And the reason I'm asking about that is because, you know, I remember talking to uh, Holly Kearns um, um, on the TV show uh, not too long ago and we talking about women in politics and the, just the grief... I'm not sure if it was as prevalent when you were there, but it's it's pretty full on. Um, and yeah. she was talking about even questioning whether she'd advised young women to get involved in politics at, at all. Well, I suspect it's worse now with social media. Oh, it's, um, I kind of came out just before social media was as big as it is now, but you could see it starting to to turn because it's it's the anonymity for the bully. With social media, you know, and they particularly pick on women, you know, and I, I think politics is tough for anyone, to be honest. I mean, I worked with Pierce, who comes from Guidor. So he came down every week on that real long trip, sometimes twice a week and left his young family there. Yes. And that's for, you know, any politician across any party coming into Dublin, where the centre of the universe, you know, is quite hard. Yes. And so much is expected of you and demanded of you. Like we're quite a, as a, as a nation, we have that expectation of parochial politics while still being critical of parochial politicians and it's cake and eat it kind of stuff, you know, and I, I, I think it makes it very hard for us to create national policy that everybody agrees on because everybody's working to a voter base that suits them. So it's a tough game to be in. Yeah. Not yeah. one I could have stayed in forever, although I'm still quite political. <laughs> you are in what way? I think, well, I mean, the likes of that strike and, I, and everything I write has some kind of political subtext does, or yeah. social conscience or, I mean, I write crime fiction, so it's just a murder plot, but it's never... I would be bored if it was just a murder plot. You have to have some have point to have something to underneath. It. And Joe gave us a nutshell plotline for her new book, Don't Look Back. 
Okay, so we start with a couple, Rose and Luke, and they're on a spontaneous honeymoon on a Caribbean island and they're going to go home and he's noticed something's a little bit off with her in the last couple of days of the holiday. And she says to him, we can't actually go home today because there's a dead body in our apartment. And I put it there. So it opens with that kind of shocker. Mm-hmm. And it turns out she's got a shady guy in her past um, and there may be in domestic violence. And this is a guy who's come back together. So he contacts an old friend of his called Mickey Shields, who's an Irish woman who used to work as a solicitor for women um, who suffered from domestic abuse situations, but gave up. She's so disillusioned by the law letting them down. And now she's kind of like, a, I heard her described the other day as a female equaliser. She helps women get out of their situations yeah, and she agrees to help Luke and Rose deal with this situation but nothing is as it seems. As I said to you the last time uh, I met you uh, before we, we, uh, we just finished your book I had no idea where I was going. I mean that's that that must be the greatest <laughs> Me fear. Me neither when I was writing well, it. <laughs> <laughs> pair of us in it but it, that must be the greatest fear for a crime writer is if people start going there's there's a red herring. There, there's a you know that that, that that he's guilty. She's whatever. So you need to kind of keep people on their toes and keep keep the guesswork going. Is that is that what what happens with? Yeah, I mean, I'm working on next year's book, and I'm going to give that a big edit because I can see where that killer is, um, and I'm going to go over it and over it until I can't see where the killer is. And once I'm happy, generally, I can pull the wool over most readers' eyes. But it takes layers. Crime books are layers. Like everyone thinks you kind of sit down and write a start to finish. You do not. Mm. You, you build the walls of the house and then you decorate the house and you can be at this for a long time. And then when you're finished, it should look easy, like you just conceived that from the start. But that's not how most crime writers write. What, what is the most difficult point in the middle of writing a book like this that you go, why am I doing this for a living? It's driving me nuts. What, are there many <laughs> points or is there one particular where you go, I've hit that wall, that horrible wall? And there's endless points yeah. of that in, in TV and book writing. And I think it's, Generally, when you've got the product at the end and you're happy, it's it's like childbirth. Yeah. It's, you forget the pain. It's all worth it. Okay. And then you sign a contract for a new one and you're like, no, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. labour so, again. Yeah, okay. So yeah. here we go yeah. again. Yeah. yeah. yeah but I did, not that I wrote read fiction, but a history book years and years ago and I was halfway through it and I thought, I can't do it. I don't have it in me and, and it's killing me. And I, and I just want to, I want it all to disappear uh, because I think I saw too much road to, to go down that, the, that, the middle is where people tend to fall that's off what, the road that's what it was yeah, yeah like exactly if you can that. write the, the end you can edit anything but you can't edit the blank page so you just have to write the end on something Joe Spain from the Ryan Tupperty Show and on Morning Ireland, celebrating Irish success at the BAFTAs. More Irish wins the BAFTA TV Awards. Sharon Horgan's Bad Sisters, Lisa McGee's Derry Girls Centre Stage. Sharon accepted the award for Best Drama Series, which told the story of Grace, who's trapped in a controlling marriage until her husband dies suddenly in mysterious circumstances and her four sisters all had plotted to kill him. Grace was played by Anne-Marie Duff and she won the BAFTA for supporting actress. In her speech, she said if someone was watching who has a person bullying them, who is telling them that who they are is wrong, that what they are isn't enough to stand up and scream at the top of your lungs. Lisa McGee won the award for Best Scripted Comedy for Derry Girls and Siobhan McSweeney won for Best Female Performance as Sister Michael, Sister George Michael. Not surprisingly, her speech was among the funniest of the night. Oh my God, sorry, hello. Um, right, so I've been warned to not do a political statement or to be like really, really boring or sad and stuff. So I'm going to start with a funny bit. As my mother lay dying in the Bon Secures Hospital in Cork, one of the very last things she said to me was, would I not consider retraining as a teacher if she could see me now? 
getting a BAFTA for playing a teacher. Joke's on you, man! <laughs> Siobhan McSweeney at the BAFTAs on Morning Ireland. And on Today with Claire Byrne, journalist Ola Geeran on the elections in Turkey. A presidential election runoff in Turkey looks increasingly likely this morning as neither incumbent President Recep Tayyip Erdogan nor his rival Kemal Kilic Daroglu is on course to reach that 50% required for an outright win. Well, Orla Giran is international correspondent with BBC News and joins me now. Good morning, Orla. Morning, Claire. So tell us, where do we stand this morning with the count? Well, it was really the election that resolved nothing. It didn't deliver an outright majority for either President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who has been in power here for 20 years, or for the opposition challenger, Kemal Kilic Darolu, who is running on behalf of a combined alliance of six opposition parties. Now, we still don't quite have the final official results. About 99% of the vote has been counted, so we're almost there. But at this stage, neither of them got beyond the 50% threshold, uh, which is needed to avoid a second round runoff. So after a long night of counting and disputes and claims and counterclaims, it looks pretty certain now that this is where Turkey is headed back to the polls and that will be on the 28th of May. And I think the big question now for the opposition is, what can they do? Because yesterday was seen really as their best chance. They had strained every sinew uh, to try and clinch a victory in the first round. In almost all of the opinion polls in the run-up to the vote, Kamal Kilic Darolu was ahead. So this has come as, as a very hard blow for them. But you know, perhaps not entirely a surprise. We have to remember that President Erdogan controls all the levers of power here. He controls almost all uh, of the local media and he could ensure wall-to-wall coverage for his campaign and very little for his opponent. Mm -hmm. And and that's in effect what we saw. So I I know, as you said, that we're not absolutely definitively certain that there's going to be a runoff. It is very likely. Has President Erdogan given any reaction to the fact that he hasn't made the threshold? Well, he appeared overnight on his balcony here in Ankara at his party headquarters, and that's something he traditionally does as a victory speech. Now, he came out last night and said, I'm in the lead uh, and I expect that I will win in the first round. But he also said if it goes to a second round, so be it. Orla Guerin on Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.